battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. We are broadcasting online in HD. 1080p and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, we talk to Casey Thomas, a recent graduate of the apprenticeship program of the Iron Workers, Local 477 for National Apprenticeship Week. Hyundai isn't just doing child labor, they're also doing racism, folks. We've got some business advice for Mazda and more on the program today. If you want to be part of the show, we've got a phone number and the line is open, folks. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail or send us a text message throughout the week when we are not on the air. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online anywhere you find anything, basically. Just search for the Valley Labor Report. We're on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, uh, and we have a website, tvlr.fm. Just a reminder, your support, your monetary support, helps us stay on the air, folks. You know those, you know, financial management shows, uh, churches, paid programming type stuff? We are paid programming, folks. We are on the radio in multiple stations across the South because of your support and the support of our sponsors. And our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. There is not a single other sponsor that we have that contributes more to the show than our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation or buy... Actually, no, you can't buy our hat anymore. We just sold the last one yesterday. Please do not buy a hat I will. <laughs> Please don't do that. I, I need to take it off the store um, because there aren't any left. <laughs> That's a good problem to have. Good problem to have. Uh, you can, though, buy our stickers, donate to the show, send us a one-time donation, make a monthly donation, all of that at our website, tvlr.fm, tvlr.fm slash donate, and tvlr.fm slash store. And you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Report. And this isn't something that we, like, put out there a whole lot or that we advertise, uh, but patrons get a ad-free version of the show. We play a few ads. We don't play very many ads. We don't have very many sponsors. (laughs) Uh, But we play a few ads, and for the patron podcast we take the ads out so it's just it's just us for you know two and a half three hours or something so like if that appeals to you then maybe become a patron and we need to figure out how to replicate that for the people who donate to us through our website uh but you know i I don't think you know but if that's something that appeals to you then you know uh become a patron 
And if you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. Yeah, and we just wanted to thank everyone for tuning in, uh, whether it's your first time listening today or you're a loyal fan. We appreciate you spending some time with us. For those of you who don't know, we air live on WVNN right now, uh, and VNN is the right-wing talk radio station in Athens and Huntsville, and we air on VNN every Saturday from 9.30 to 11 a.m. with our overtime section of the show after 11, airing online on YouTube and Facebook, so make sure you catch that when we get done today at 11 on the radio. A portion of the show is replayed during the week on WZZA, which is a historic black radio station in northwest Alabama, and on WHIV, which is a community radio station in New Orleans. We release the full episode on Spotify, Apple, and the various podcasting apps. So please subscribe to us on your app of choice and give us a good review. And throughout the week, we, uh, we release clips of the show as standalone videos on YouTube, and in some cases on TikTok and YouTube Shorts. So if there's a specific segment or interview you want to find, we try to make it easier for you and accessible. All that content is free. Just do us a favor, hit subscribe, hit like, and a special thanks to all of you who do donate, all of you who comment, all of you who call in, and all of you who've liked us, followed us, shared us, reviewed us. That engagement on social media and the apps really does help, and that's a quick, easy, and free way to support the program. If you believe it's important to have our own media of, by, and for the Southern working class, please consider supporting us however you can, and please share with your coworkers, friends, family, and neighbors. We know you're getting bombarded with a lot of donation requests this time of year. I certainly am. Uh, but if you find value in our project and you're willing to chip in a couple bucks, it would really mean a lot. Yeah, and you can also super chat the show on YouTube. If you go into YouTube and you go into the chat, uh, you can you can do these things called super chats. And Strom just sent us $2 solidarity from South Carolina. Thank you, Strom. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you for your support. So let's go ahead and jump into um, Last Week in Southern Labor. That's a segment that we do every week where uh, we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. We get this information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird, which compiles all this information. Information, uh, for the entire United States. So if you want to see what's going on outside of the South, then subscribe to that newsletter. It is whogetsthebird.substack.com. And with that, let's jump into new organizing for the week of November 6th through the 13th in new organizing. Sodexo Dining Workers at New Orleans Loyola University are organizing with Unite Here. There are 100 first student school bus drivers in Amarillo, Texas, organizing with Teamsters. Local 577. Ten workers at HVAC contractor UD Contracting in Fort Knox, Kentucky are joining UA Local 502. In wins and losses, we had a couple this week. 59 Starbucks workers at three stores, including in Arlington, Virginia and Shavana Park, Texas, voted to join Starbucks Workers United in a combined 34-18 to 18 vote. 131 workers at Titan Concrete across South Florida lost their bid to join Teamsters Local 769 by one vote. Ooh. By one vote, folks. 54 to 55. Now, there were eight challenged ballots, so it's possible this one could flip, but that has got to be heartbreaking for the organizing oh, yeah. committee. 
in strikes and bargaining after meeting with Marty Walsh, the Brotherhood of Maintenance Way employees. Uh, negotiating committee voted not to extend their deadline for a rail strike, and then, in a revote, they voted to actually, yes, extend it after all, <laughs> lining up with the Brotherhood of Railway Signal Railroad Signalmen's uh, December 4th deadline in yet another backdown from another rail union. Smart TD and the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen results were supposed to have been announced on November 17th. Uh, their, their votes on the tentative agreement that they had uh, from the membership, but I haven't seen anything come out about that, so uh, we'll try to update y'all next week on that. The Airline Pilots Association pilots with United Airlines are picketing the United Pilots Training Center on Tuesday. FedEx Express pilots, also with the ALPA, are filing for mediation right now. The APFA flight attendants are picketing across American Airlines bases. And the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 689 has authorized a strike against Keolis in Loudoun County, Virginia. And Teamsters Local 533, who struck Keolis three times last year in 2021, are reopening several complaints they have against the company. Mm. Education negotiations in Bay County, Florida, are at a, quote, standstill, according to local news. And in politics and legislation, Unite Here seems to be the core tactical field team that has carried the Democratic Party to Senate majorities in both 2020 and 2022, and yet there is no real expectation that they would get some particular legislation or political favor out of it, just because the favor is, frankly, not having the GOP majority itself, right? Uh, maybe that'll change. Hopefully that'll change, and they'll cash in in some clearer way, but it's pretty clear. It is pretty clear that they provided the field margin in Nevada and maybe Arizona, and maybe will do so again in Georgia. Mm -hmm. One political favor that labor could ask for is to save the National Labor Relations Board from what its staff union is calling, quote, budgetary Armageddon. And it's not just the staff union sounding the alarm. The NLRB chair, Lauren McFerrin, described the situation as akin to, quote, Lucille Ball at the chocolate factory. And general counsel Jennifer Abruzzo talked about delays in case processing. We're going to be digging a bit deeper into what's happening at the NLRB in overtime, I believe. So stay tuned. We've got some words from the staff union on that. And finally, in internal union politics, there are just over two weeks until ballots are counted in the UAW election. And the federally appointed election monitor has found the incumbents illegally used an email list to contact 600 voters. Uh. Now, that may not sound like many, but with turnout currently standing at less than 9%, with again more than two weeks left to go in a mail-in election, but still... In a five-way contested race for the presidency, it could very well end up mattering. Right. And I think it's fair to wonder what other resources might have been put to use uh, for incumbent advantage, but we'll see. Amid all the pilot labor activity, the APA, representing American Airlines pilots, is considering a merger with the ALPA, representing pilots at 40 or so other characters. Carriers. Uh, the APA originally broke away in the 60s, so this would be um, something of a reunification. Right. 
Interesting. There was definitely a lot of airline mm-hmm. uh, activity over the last couple of weeks. For more details about what's going on in the airline pilot labor situation, uh, Jonah Furman has a breakdown uh, about that specifically in Labor Notes. So, as always, subscribe to Labor Notes, obviously. And read Jonah Furman, wherever Jonah he Furman. may be. Yeah. Uh, So today marks the end of National Apprenticeship Week. From the U.S. Department of Labor's website, I'm going to read this off. Uh, The National Apprenticeship Week is a nationwide celebration where industry, labor, equity, workforce, education, and government leaders host events to showcase the successes and value of registered apprenticeships for rebuilding our economy, advancing racial and gender equity, and supporting underserved communities. National Apprenticeship Week is an opportunity to highlight how registered apprenticeship, a proven and industry-driven training model, provides a critical talent pipeline that can help to address some to address some of our nation's pressing workforce challenges such as rebuilding our country's infrastructure, addressing critical supply chain demands, supporting a clean energy workforce, modernizing our cybersecurity response and responding to care economy issues. President Biden put out his own statement with the proclamation of National Apprenticeship Week, saying in part, I have always believed that the middle class built America and that unions built the middle class. Registered apprenticeships are a testament to the power of unions to deliver good-paying jobs that offer dignity, dignity and respect. They also reflect American workers' dedication and commitment to excellence. During National Apprenticeship Week, let us celebrate the apprentices of America, give our thanks to the mentors who train them, and remind ourselves of our ongoing responsibility to invest in the best workforce on the planet. Um, And, you know, I also wanted to take some time to say that the trades, they're not just for men. Um, I know that a lot of folks think construction, and all they see is big, burly men, right? And, you know, we're going to be talking to a young man on the other side of this break and his experience with uh, his union's apprenticeship program. But the AFL-CIO has a really good video showcasing some women in the trades, talking about their experience and the work that they're doing. So I wanted to play that for y'all just in full um, because I think it's important to send out the message that, you know, the trades... Anybody can go into the trades. Uh, it's not just. It's certainly not just for people who aren't good at school. It's not for dummies. Um, it is. You know, it takes a certain amount of intelligence and education from uh, while you are learning the trade. Um, but it's a good paying job. I mean, we're going to talk about later in the program how union apprenticeships uh, rival and in some ways exceed the earnings that college graduates get. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's if, if uh, it's something that everybody really should consider. And if you are listening and you've got a child that's in high school, uh, you have a grandchild in high school, or you are coming out of high school, or you're in a career transition uh, early in your career, you know, the trades and a union apprenticeship program is really something to consider. And so to highlight some of that, uh, some of the ways that, you know, it's not just for men, that kind of stuff, we're going to play this video from the AFL-CIO. I'm a sheet metal worker and I do welding, RTS, and field install. I work in 
brick and masonry restoration and waterproofing. I'm a plumber steam fitter. I am a pipe fitter. I'm with the Operating Engineers Local 132 out of West Virginia. Um, I am the dispatcher for them and I am the first female dispatcher for my local. You can't do better than walking down the streets in your city and be like, oh, I worked on that building and I've been on that roof and I helped make that building pretty <laughs> and I washed that. Um, so it's been, it's been really rewarding. I feel really valuable. I mean, I fix my city and make it pretty. So you can't get better than that. I'm a fourth year apprentice and the first three years I was working out in the field, but we had a class in uh, computer-aided design. I'm not sure if you're as familiar with that, but um, it was just kind of a little add-on to our drafting class, but I fell in love with it and I asked my uh, school uh, advisor about it and he set me up with the online program. So I was like teaching myself and lo and behold, one of our contractors said, hey, we want an apprentice to train in AutoCAD because you know, people are getting older and retiring. And they're like, ah, I got someone for you. And now, uh, just uh, six weeks ago, I've been in their office doing CAD design, and there you go. Having a union job is the awesomest. I mean, we, we have benefits, we have retirement, we have an annuity program, so it's like a savings program. So every job that I go into, they put, it's either like a quarter or $3 an hour into that. So I have an awesome retirement whenever I retire. Yeah, hopefully in probably about five years, but. <laughs> I started a club called the S Club, which is Sisters in Piping. <laughs> and it's for young women who are 16, 17, 18, 19, who are trying to get into the trade. It's before they get in. And I wanna, and I talk to them about the mental, everything is the mental. If you can get over the mental part, it's not about the physical, because I'm not even five feet <laughs> and I can do it. So if I can do it, you can do it. I wanna communicate with sisters coming out of the incarcerated community to try to reach back into that community because I came from that community too when I was younger. I really want to focus on helping youth, try to open them, um, I don't know how you would say, give them knowledge of the trades because when I came out of incarceration I didn't know anything about the trades. I didn't know that I could go and make money and they wouldn't do a background check and that my past wouldn't affect my career. So for me that's another reason why I joined the trades. I just want to let the other youth know that there's that option. So I really liked that video from the AFL-CIO. Appreciate them putting that together. And as we're heading into the break, let's actually put some numbers to some of the some of that praise. Um, in their announcement of the National Apprenticeship Week, of this year's National Apprenticeship Week, the AFL-CIO also noted that the average, the average starting salary after completing a registered apprenticeship program is $77,000 a year. That's a pretty good that's, great. Uh, that's a pretty good salary. <laughs> and we want to stress the importance though of the apprenticeship being a union apprenticeship. Not all apprenticeships are created equally and the Illinois Economic Policy Institute did a study showing that while it is true union apprenticeship programs rival and in some ways can surpass a college degree, non-union apprenticeship programs don't give the attendee any any advantage at all over just a high school education. 
Let's throw that graphic up, Adam. While outcomes for, participa uh, for participants in joint labor management or union apprenticeships, uh, apprenticeship programs rival those for college graduates, and the programs account for the vast majority of construction uh, apprentices in the United States, employer-only or non-union apprenticeship programs generally produce labor market outcomes that are on par with national averages for high school graduates. There's we've a big difference. A big difference. And we've also talked about how something on the order of 40%, 40% of construction workers are on some type of public assistance, uh, some sort of welfare, right? And, that's, and that is certainly not to denigrate, to denigrate those people. It is just to point out that there's a difference between having a union job and a non-union job, having a union apprenticeship program and a non-union apprenticeship pro program. And it's clear that the way to go is a union apprenticeship program instead of one of these uh, local fly-by-night podunk, you know, contractors, right? Um, so, so uh, we we appreciate all, all of the folks that are that are putting in the work to get the word out, uh, putting together these great graphics and and uh, these videos for people. So definitely want folks to consider uh, if you are at the beginning of your career, you're in a career transition, consider going into the trades. And we've actually got some trade unions sponsoring the show, and so you're going to hear their ads right now as we head into this break. We'll be right back. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. 
If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We've got a phone number and the line is open. That phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can call or text and we've got one of both uh, from Penny in Connecticut. Thanks so much for highlighting the opportunities for women. I'll be sharing. Penny, thank you. And happy to do it. And we've got a caller on the line from an 863 area code. Caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hold on just a sec. Let me get this caller on the on the air. Hi, this is Joey Leach. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, calling again. I'm with the uh, Security Police Fire Professionals of America down here in Florida. And I just want to thank Labor Valley Report for all you guys are doing for the labor movement, particularly down here in the South. I love the uh, weekly, uh, or last week's labor report. It's exactly what we need. And uh, I just give a shout out to all my uh, brothers and sisters in the SPFPA, all over the uh, up and down Florida, all over the South, and all over across the country. And uh, good luck to you guys in your show. Appreciate thank you the so call, much. Joey. Thank you so much. We yep. appreciate that. Thanks for calling in. Um, so. Yep. So we've got some late-breaking news from the uh, Alabama waterfront. Some late-breaking news on the Alabama waterfront. The International Longshore Association Local 1410 have set a new strike date for Tuesday, November 22nd, after a strike date last month was postponed due to federal mediation. Yesterday at noon, the membership voted to move forward with the strike action without further delays after the mediation was abruptly canceled. According to reporting from AL.com, there are three major issues that are causing the holdup in the labor agreement. Line handling, or tying up vessels, retroactive benefits for the last few years, and the number of workers per unit, according to Mark Bass, president of Local 1410. Union workers have uh, want to have sole control over line handling. As it stands right now, union workers cannot tie up vessels that are handled by non-unionized Steve Doring companies, but non-unionized workers can tie up vessels handled by the CSA. 
Local 1410 wants to line handle all the vessels for the CSA that is contracted to unload, which is uh, which would mean more man hours for its workers, Bass says. This is going to affect 800, 800 local 1410 workers down in Mobile. So we'll be keeping an eye on that and maybe getting one of them on the show next week. We'll see. Yeah, absolutely. So our first guest today is Casey Thomas. Uh, have we got Casey on the line now, Adam? I do believe we do. Fantastic. Casey Thomas is a 29-year-old. Uh, actually, his birthday was last week, and I can't remember if he was turning 29 or if he was turning 30. Casey, uh, uh, happy birthday. Happy late birthday. And how old are you? Uh, it was yesterday, uh, 29. Yesterday turned 29. Well, happy birthday, brother. Uh, Casey here is a recent graduate of the Iron Workers Local 477 Apprenticeship Program. Casey, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So how long ago was it again that you graduated from the apprenticeship program? Uh, I graduated this past August. So it's it's just a few months, just a few months after you uh, completed the apprenticeship program then yes gotcha so what kind of work have they got you uh have they got you doing now uh right now uh at 3m indicator uh setting up a big pipe rack uh on the structural side that's most of the experience that i've received is on the structural side and uh putting up the building itself so uh that's that's where I'm at now, and that's uh, it's going pretty good. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Glad uh, you're enjoying the work. And so, before we go into your backstory, can you tell us uh, tell us more about where you are now, and, and uh, as a union iron worker, and specifically as it relates to like wages and benefits? What does that look like, and and how has that affected your ability to, you know, kind of move about the world and and have and have a, a fairly comfortable life? I, it has definitely uh, changed uh, my life, I'm sure, for many other brothers and sisters in the hall. Uh, it's like once you, or which I just graduated, so mm-hmm. my, my pay, I, I can always negotiate my pay wherever I go as far as travel and stuff like that. And, uh, and the pay just can't beat it. I mean, it. Uh, on top of the benefits, the things that we receive uh, towards our pension annuity, uh, really nothing I can complain about. I, it's all just good things. Mm-hmm. And if, if you don't, if you don't care, what what are the um, you know like w- what are you making per hour right now, and, and what are your uh, uh, what does some of the benefits look like as far as um, you know how much are you paying for health care, how much is going into your retirement, stuff like that. I. I can't uh, say for sure. I'd have to go back and look at everything, but per hourly, it's uh, twenty nine ninety. Uh, on top of the other benefits and stuff like that, we just recently had a raise on some things, uh, but I, I can't give you an exact number on those. 
I think I think if I remember correctly um, from talking to uh, talking to folks like Jeb and Eddie in your local, that all told, um, you know, your total total hourly rate uh, when you include all the benefits and everything, it looks something like forty forty five an hour. Um, and you know, obviously, you know, being able to have a pension, uh, you know, in today's day and age is, is not something that that most folks have, right? Right. And so I think you know that that sets us up. Oh, and and you've got you know you've got like a, a wife and, and kids, and and you've been able to buy a house recently. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Uh, right behind me. Uh, I mean, do you want to get into a little bit of my story? now or yeah yeah well that uh, well i was uh it, i i was just gonna say that 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 sets us uh that sets us up well for the contrast i think you know the you know you the you you've got you know wife and kids and and you've got you got a house now and and so you know go ahead and and, and talk to us about you know what you were up to you know what uh what, what things were like so to speak before um you got into the apprenticeship program over there uh man yeah it was probably about five years ago yeah about five years ago i've got a little baby girl uh she's turning three in january i got two step kids when i was nine and when i was 12 uh but about five years ago i was still living with my parents after i spent some time in jail i got court ordered to a program in brooklyn new york uh i was pretty bad off on drugs and getting into bad situations and whatnot but about five years i got out and like i said still not knowing where my life was going and uh i remember back in high school i had a little bit of experience with uh welding uh with uh mr uh, barry hill that's part of the apprenticeship uh at the hall now and I remember getting in contact with him uh, and he called me back out of the blue. Hey man, do you want a job? He said, uh, it's part of the iron workers. And when he said that, I'm like, I don't, I've never heard that. I don't, I don't know what iron working is, hmm. but uh, we got to talking about it. He had me go to a, a fair where I met uh, uh, Eddie Mitchell. Uh, he explained a lot of things and I just jumped right on board and I went to work, uh, found my wife, had kids, got to buy a house, vehicles. I was, everything is just has been uphill ever since I got to the apprenticeship. So there's absolutely no complaints. I can't, I just love what the hall has done for me. And it's not just, it's not just a job. I would say as soon as I got into the program, uh, it's like an immediate feeling of brotherhood, uh, just everybody that you that you're with it just feels like a big family uh and it's just all together a, a great turnout for whoever wants to join and can get in and uh that's that's just my biggest thing about it and i i just love it i enjoy the family the brotherhood the work itself and it's just all good things and and i think that you know there are a couple things in your story, you know, that, that speak to the ability, uh, uh, you know, the the way that 
going into the trades can really be for for multiple types of folks, right? You came into right. you, you know you came into the apprenticeship about four or five years ago, twenty five. You know that's a lot older than most people go into the apprenticeship program. Most people are going to be coming into the apprenticeship program right out of high school, right? 17, 18. Uh, but they still have that ability for people who are, you know, older in a career transition or, or you know, in a life transition kind of as you were to uh, uh, to join as an apprentice and, and make that change in their life. And also, you know, the ability for folks who have who have had trouble with the law to turn their life around, right? And and that's that's something that you can't do in a lot of other careers. You know, you you've been to jail once, and folks will just really write you off. And right. and for uh, you know, trade unions like the iron workers, they really present a good way for people who have who have had issues like that to turn their life around and to still be able to, to lead a good, respectable life, have a, have a good, respectable income and, and not have to have to stay in, you know, uh, you know, criminal enterprises type stuff. Right. Yes, it's definitely uh, <clears throat> for anybody. It's a it's a life changer. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 100. It just opens the door to as many opportunities and things that you want to involve yourself with. And so, you know, let, let's talk about the apprenticeship program itself to maybe, you know, maybe we can give some people uh, that are listening that may be interested or, or that maybe they know someone that might be interested and they can send this clip to them later. Uh, let's try to help them understand kind of what they would be getting into, right? If, if they said, okay, I'm interested, um, I want to start this apprenticeship program. So the big thing is, is, one of the big things is that you earn while you learn. Can you talk to us about the breakdown in your experience of working and and on-the-job training versus classroom instruction, like what the hours breakdown was and and what you were making uh, per hour as you were going through the apprenticeship program? Can you talk to us about those things? Yeah, uh, my first job was... uh building the uh toyota monster plant in huntsville hmm. and uh when i first went out there well f- before i say anything if it it goes along with anything you got to have the work ethic and the desire to want to see something finished through if you don't have that then i might go to mcdonald's i guess but uh not huntsville toyota uh I began as a pre-apprentice making sixteen sixty, I believe. And uh, my first year of the apprenticeship, we had to go to class two nights a week. So every Tuesday and Thursday, uh, from where I was working at was probably about an hour, an hour or so uh, to the hall where we uh, had our uh, uh, schooling at. Hmm. And, so every Tuesday and Thursday, I'd get off around three o'clock. Uh, I had to go straight to school, and after the first year, they uh, turned it into every uh, every other month. You'd have to go for a, a week straight uh, mm-hmm. for ten hours a day, and uh, it was tough. It was definitely tough, especially not living over there mm-hmm. some guys most most of them live ref, uh, 
kind of closer, so I just get out of class and go straight home. But I got to drive most of the time, but most of the uh, work was near my house, so while they was having a short drive to school, I got a short drive to work, so it kind of mm. worked out. <laughs> right, right. And what? Uh, how much did that cost, the schooling that you had? Uh, absolutely nothing. They actually paid me to go pretty much. I mean, they set me up for work. I went to work, made money, uh, go to school. It was absolutely free while I'm learning everything. Uh, it's kind of a no brainer not to get some free education. I didn't have to go to college for it. Actually, it's, you get college credits for finishing the program. Uh, so yeah, it's, a pretty good deal, I think. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a pretty good deal. Uh, what was the support system like from the union as you're going through this apprenticeship program? You know, did you uh, uh, were were journeymen uh, people who had uh, finished the apprenticeship program previously? Were they um, were they a help as you were kind of going through your school and trying to you know I don't know how much like homework you you had or you know um, if whenever you had a question, you know, were, were, were there folks there that could help you through, uh, some questions that you had? Oh yeah. Uh, of course there was always a few different instructors. Um, usually there at the same time at school, uh, anytime on job site, you got, we're surrounded by journeymen. Uh, and like I said previously, it's like a brotherhood. Anytime there's a question, don't know how to do this. Uh, can you show me an easier way? Whatever the case may be, there's always somebody to help you along the way and can show you little tricks or whatnot and to just improve your ability to do the task at hand. So yeah, it's it's always it's always awesome, man. Fantastic. Uh, well, Adam, do you have any questions for him? Uh, how long? Did you, did you spend as an apprentice? How long was the program again? Uh, the program for me was three years. Okay. Gotcha. And then you had one year as a pre-apprentice, is that right? Uh, or... pre, I, no, it was uh, – I got in. I, was, I served a pre-apprentice for just a short amount of time. Mm. Uh, just before I got to start class, it was only a few number of months, but – Okay, gotcha. All right, well, Casey, is there anything else that, that you reckon uh, folks folks ought to know about, uh, you know, the Iron Workers Apprenticeship Program and in particular, uh, trade union apprenticeship programs in general, uh, your experience, stuff like that? I, I feel like I've tried to touch on a little bit of everything. Uh, man, it's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle. It's mm-hmm. a lifestyle. It's a life changer uh especially for me it helped me i i thought i was gonna be working a little the little plant job i had making ten dollars an hour for the rest of my life and uh i I thought that's where i was at and i gave this a shot i excelled in it the best i believe best my ability i got a house kids wife it's i mean i didn't go wrong at all. I absolutely couldn't have gone wrong with it. Everything I if you're not in it and have a chance to get in it, look for the chance to get in it and get in it 
and you will definitely not be disappointed. Man. That's awesome. Yeah. And I really appreciate you sharing your testimony and, and I'm just uh, proud to hear your story. Well, I appreciate Thanks for it, taking man. the time to talk to us, brother. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you. Yep. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and uh, go to another break. We will be right back with some, uh, we're going to give some business advice to Mazda. Uh, <laughs> and then we're going to be talking to the attorney uh, representing folks in some of the discrimination lawsuits against Hyundai. Uh, so stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. We'll be right back. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or DSANorthAlabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Iron Workers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. 
it. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256 383 3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alabama's only Union Talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. We've got a phone number and the line is open. That is 844-899-8857. You can call or text the show and we might uh, take your call, read your message live on air. We appreciate the folks in the live chat on YouTube and Facebook for hanging out with us. Uh, Infinite Content says, uh, I like the clip talking about the women in trades that we played earlier. Cameron Dunphy says, listening in from a mandatory Saturday at UA local, UAW Local 3520. David says he's going to be swapping to FM because he's having a hard time connecting to YouTube in his garage. He's got a really cool project going on. Um, Jeb says, Ironworkers in the house, baby. That's right, folks. That's right. Um, Strom says, Sounds like a great program. Infinite Content says, 40, uh, 45 an hour ain't bad, and that's definitely true. Uh, Infinite Content also asks if we could get a link to the program uh, to share with others, and you just heard an ad for the Ironworkers Local 477 during our break, uh, but they do have a website, and that website is ironworkers477.org. That's right. And over on the Facebook chat, we've got uh, Joe uh, Joe Marshall, Mel Sutton. Appreciate y'all listening, and appreciate everybody listening on this Saturday morning. So not only uh, is it National Apprenticeship Week, it is also American Education Week, and Adam has some stuff to t- uh, some stuff to say about that, right, Adam? Oh yes, of course, of <laughs> course. So it is American Education Week, and I took the following pledge with the National Education Association. This American Education Week, we are coming together as families, educators, and communities to pledge our support for excellence in public education for all students. Great public schools transform the lives of students and their communities so we can create a more just and inclusive society. Together, we pledge to unite as one voice for our nation's students, demand justice and equity for students and educators, stand up for educator rights and safe working conditions, 
advocate for local, state, and federal policies that guarantee an equal opportunity for all students to succeed, share with our, pers- share with our personal and professional networks about the challenges facing our students, educators, and public schools, and work together to find solutions for these challenges. I encourage you to take the pledge as well, but not only to take the pledge, but to act on it. I believe educators in the public schools in which they work play a pivotal role in our society and our democracy, to the extent we have democracy. On the Statue of Liberty are inscribed these words from Emma Lazarus. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Public schools, perhaps more than any other American institution, come closest to living up to this American promise. Unlike their competitors, public schools are required to admit all within their doors, regardless of ability or language or income or race or gender or identity or religion, and to provide a free, appropriate public education to the best of their capability. For all its flaws and remaining inequities, public education is one of the most long-lasting, comprehensive social benefits provided to families, particularly in a state like Alabama. Schools alone cannot fix all of our society's ills, though we often act as if they can. But we should always remember that public schools are the cornerstone of their communities. We need a strong majority to firmly declare that every child should receive an excellent public education. In the aftermath of the Great Recession, the GOP took control of a supermajority of the Alabama legislature, along with control of the executive and judicial branches. The results were as destructive as they were predictable. Some of the steepest funding cuts in the nation, the legalization and spread of sketchy charter schools, private school vouchers established through the Alabama Accountability Act, bogus so-called accountability measures like the failing schools list, attacks on the retirement pension and the creation of a second-tier retirement, attacks on the teaching profession itself from multiple directions, attacks on due process and tenure resulting in a significantly weakened set of rights under the so-called Students' First Act. Gotta love these Orwellian names. And of course, attacks on AEA, which is a shell of its former self. All of this and more happened within a few years early last decade, meaning an entire generation of Alabama students have been educated in an environment of austerity, corporate reform, and privatization. An entire generation of Alabama students sent to public schools sabotaged by politicians, schools struggling to retain and recruit qualified educators and provide the education our students deserve. In the last few years, the legislature has been a lot more quiet regarding the legal and funding framework for public schools. Propelled by right-wing media, controversies have erupted around issues of race, gender, and of course COVID, but the education budget and salaries have grown steadily with minimal opposition, even if in real inflation-adjusted dollars, we're mostly talking about catching up for previous cuts and stagnation. Compared to the first half of the last decade, the last several years have seen a de-emphasis from the legislature's GOP supermajority when it comes to the accelerated privatization and sabotage of public schools. However, Alabama's educators would be making a mistake to assume this relative truce will last. The first year of a new four-year term for legislators is often the most important. 
years away from their next election and emboldened by victory, this is typically when the wildest and worst ideas are put forth. If they screw you over in 2023, they reckon you'll forget by 2026. Whether it's asinine culture wars, playing to ignorance and prejudice, or the ever-present threats of more privatization, Alabama's educators will need to be informed and organized to withstand what might be coming over the next four years. Alabama educators must unite and reject any attempts to divert public education funding as well as new proposals to issue tax rebates. Rebates, seriously. As if these relatively sunny days lately for the budget will last forever and there's no gloomy forecast ahead. As if much of the budget growth didn't come from one-time federal infusions. They're not discussing badly needed reforms to Alabama's upside down tax system that punishes the working class while advantaging the wealthy, the big corporations, and the absentee mega landowners throughout the state. They're not talking about adding new re revenue sources like every other state around us. No, certain legislators like Arthur Orr, for example, are floating the idea of issuing rebates because of so-called record revenue, while the right-wing think tank Alabama Policy Institute is pushing for permanent tax cuts at a time when we have such great needs across the state. They're talking rebates when the state of Alabama can't even provide all of its children pre-K. They're talking rebates when many of our public schools, from the Tennessee line to the Gulf of Mexico, have mold, asbestos, tainted water, leaky roofs, broken HVACs, and unsafe playgrounds. They're talking rebates when the state health insurance plan has yet to receive any of the American Rescue Plan Act ARPA funding to offset the millions of COVID-related extra expenses, which last I checked was a lot closer to the point of ARPA than building new mega prisons. They're talking rebates when so many of our public schools lack the counselors they need, like the nurses they need, like the social workers they need, like the mental health professionals they need. They're talking rebates when there's no guaranteed living wage for support staff. These are the workers tasked with safely transporting Alabama's children. The workers tasked with feeding healthy, nutritious meals to Alabama's children. The workers tasked with providing safe learning environments for Alabama's children. The workers tasked with providing safe, clean facilities for Alabama's children. And all the other workers whose labor allows our public schools to operate for Alabama's families. They don't guarantee these folks a living wage or in many cases, even a fair step raise policy, and legislators want to talk about rebates. Nearly 80% of Alabama's teachers are women, and they don't even provide maternity leave. Teachers are tasked with shaping the future of young people and by extension, our entire society. And yet, they're not even provided the legal opportunity in Alabama to collectively bargain their working conditions or withhold their labor. If our state were serious about public education for all its children, educators would be empowered to create the kinds of public schools our communities deserve. So no, we don't need any short-sighted rebates or more tax breaks for the wealthy and big business. Not when we have such needs in education. Not when we rank at or near the bottom on every quality of life metric. 
not when hundreds of thousands of our fellow Alabamians suffer as the state refuses to expand Medicaid. Not when we have an incarceration crisis that is an international disgrace. Not when parts of our state lack first world infrastructure. No, we don't need more trickle-down economics when it has so clearly failed the everyday people of our state. We need a diverse, working-class movement rooted in love, justice, and solidarity that can demand an excellent public education for all of Alabama. So for me, I think the best thing we can do to support educators this American Education Week and every other week is to educate, agitate, and organize in our own communities and our own workplaces to build people power. The more people power we have, the closer we get to a future Alabama we can truly believe in. Hope folks hear that. Hope folks uh, in Montgomery hear that. And I hope folks that are tantalized by you know, the idea of, of a one-time rebate, you know, understand the idea of delayed gratification. And this is something that these, you know, right-wing capitalist types are going to talk to you about all the time in your personal finances. But what they're trying to do right now is exactly the opposite of what would be, you know, the responsible thing to do for a state budget. Right. So, you right. know, hope, hope, folks, uh, hope folks hear that. Hope folks hear that. Have we got uh, Mr. Davis in the Zoom? We do, yes. All right, so let's yeah. Get so, that set up. well, so if if you thought you know that the only thing Hyundai is doing wrong in Alabama was forcing twelve-year-old children to work in manufacturing plants with OSHA fines for amputation hazards, your estimation of the morals of corporate executives is too high, actually. Last week, another lawsuit alleging racism at Hyundai plants in Alabama was filed, this time by five black men who alleged they were denied promotions, unfairly punished, and told to report to their, quote, master oh my God. by a higher up in the company. Now, I say another because this is a second lawsuit brought against Hyundai in as many months. Last month, a black executive filed suit as well. And in this lawsuit, in this lawsuit, they say that this comes subsequent to an EEOC complaint against Hyundai from the same person. They say that Hyundai's argument in the EEOC case against the accusations of racism is that the elevation to the executive team had, quote, had been, quote, nothing more than a tactic to counter union organizing at the plant, and that since the union threat had abated, she was expendable. So their defense was, no, we're not racist. Uh, we just pulled up a token black woman for a union busting. That's it. We're not racist. We just... That's all right. We were doing. They're just they're they're uh, race neutral union busting, and it just so happens that black people are getting hurt by it, right? I'm sure it's all a big coincidence. Here to talk to, to us about uh, this case and the other one. Uh, uh, here to talk to us about both of those cases that he is representing folks for against Hyundai is Arthur Davis, an attorney with HKM Employment Attorneys. Uh, Arthur, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I appreciate it. No, thank you. Uh, good to meet both of you, and uh, good to join your program this morning. Thank absolutely, you. absolutely. So, 
I guess talk to us about this mo- the, the most recent one first, and then we can go to the one from last month about the you know <laughs> the insane the insane defense yeah. they had in this EEOC case. But let's talk about this one uh, the the uh, one that was filed last week, where um, and uh, on behalf of those five black men who allege, among other things, that they were told to report to their, quote, master. Talk to us about how they came into contact with you and what they and all of the things that they're alleging and, and what they're looking for from this uh, from this lawsuit. Sure. So let me start by saying that these five guys are enormously brave. Uh, Frederick Coleman, Edward Daniels, um, Stacey Trimble, Jason Ingram, they have all shown an enormous capacity, and Jimmy Williams, they've all shown an enormous capacity for bravery just by filing a lawsuit. Mm. Four of the five of these individuals still work at Hyundai. Now, I want you and your audience to think about that. This is a lawsuit that alleges systematic retaliation, not just discrimination, but retaliation at the plant. So if you're alleging that making internal complaints, going to team relations, talking to your supervisors, if you're Mm. alleging that that gets you punished, that gets you demoted, that gets you written up, what the heck do you think might happen if you put your name on a federal lawsuit? So for these gentlemen, again, four of the five still work there. Literally two of them were telling me that they got news alerts about this case on Thursday night while they were picking up their cell phones to go home as they were leaving the ship. So it is amazing to me that these gentlemen, and it's noteworthy to me that these gentlemen have shown this kind of courage. So the lawsuit is about what I believe is a culture of discrimination and retaliation at the Hyundai plant in Montgomery. It's as simple as that. It's a plant where almost all the hard work of building cars and painting cars and assembling cars is done by African-Americans. And the overwhelming majority of that work is done by African-American men. But within this company, if you are an African-American, the more the job pays, the more power the job has, the less likely it is to be diverse. So Hyundai promotes black people to supervise black people on the front lines. There are plenty of black team leaders and group leaders, but when you try to move from that level to assistant manager, there's a dramatic drop off, but still 30% of the assistant managers are black. But guess what happens when you move to manager? that drops down to less than 10%. Mm. And guess what happens when you try to move to the very prestigious role of head of department? Hyundai currently has, out of roughly 20-some heads of department, two are African-American, and one of those was installed in just the last several months. Now let's go one step beyond that to the executive team, which is roughly 14 or 15 people who run the plant and make all the senior decisions. I want you to mull on this for a minute. In the last 17 years since Hyundai and Montgomery went fully operational, in the last 17 years, two black people 
have sat on the executive team. Two in 17 years. Mm. Now, on top of that pattern of not promoting and a rigid and hard glass ceiling for black folks, there has been a blatant pattern of retaliation against people who have the nerve to speak up. So this one incident where a white manager told a group of black people, oh, Master Swain needs to talk to you. The master wants to talk to you. He obviously thought that was funny. Right. He obviously thought that was funny. Well, Mm. there is never, never has been, never will be anything remotely jocular about an institution that put people in chains and whip them and disfigure them and discard them for life. That ain't joking material. But these gentlemen complain. So what do you think happens after the complaints? After the complaints, a team relations official told several of the black men, three of whom were my clients, Coleman, Daniels, and Williams, they were told, watch out. There's a target on you. There's a red dot on you, and all the hunters listening know what that means. Mm. And they're trying to fire you. They're trying to get your jobs. All of these gentlemen have faced retaliation. One of them, Mr. Coleman, was told back in August, he asked, you know, look, I've been applying for promotions for several years. I'm getting good marks in my interviews. I'm getting good performance reviews. Why am I not getting promoted? You know what a senior official told him? You need to stop complaining and making all this noise and make management happy. When you do that, maybe you'll get promoted. So this case is about getting some justice at the Hyundai plant in Montgomery. And we all know in the American legal system and this capitalist culture that we have, justice is measured by money. So we are seeking financial damages. We're seeking damages for lost wages because when these men are denied promotions, they're denied income that they're entitled to. But we're also seeking damages for emotional distress. One of my clients, and I won't name which one, but it's mentioned in the lawsuit. One of my clients has literally had to take the last two months off at work because of the pressure that he's under and the anxiety that he's under knowing that Mm. every day he goes to work, he feels there's a bullseye on him. Some people handle that. Some people, though, feel that stress and they feel that pressure, and that's wrong. And that's why the law awards compensatory damages. So we are looking forward to litigating this case. I'm working with a very talented lawyer, Ivy Best, who's one of the most brilliant young lawyers I've ever worked with. Uh, we look forward to litigating these cases and the case of a vet, Yoki Schufert, that we filed a month ago. Yes, and and I, I think you mentioned this earlier, but I just want to underscore how you know even the the team leads or, or you know the the or the assistant managers you were talking about. There's 30 percent of black folks, uh, or 30 percent of those positions are occupied by black folks. This is a this is in a facility that is 85 percent the workforce is 85 percent black. And so immediately when you go from the front lines to just two layers above, you're looking at like a third of the people that are actually doing the work or being promoted. And and you know there's 
and, and, and then beyond that, beyond just the statistical stuff that you've got, you have these, and, and one of the things that you haven't mentioned here, but that is in this AL.com article, is that one of your, uh, uh, one of the people that you're representing said that he applied for a promotion and immediately after that promotion, after he applied, that promotion or that open position was withdrawn despite it yes. not being filled, right? Right. So right. there's clear, like, we don't want, you know, there, there, it's clear by the numbers, it's clear by the retaliation when you talk about discrimination happening, and it's clear by closing open positions that are not being filled when the only people that are applying is black folks. Mm. So let me put this in perspective. Let's say that somehow Alabama was 85% black. Let's say Alabama mm -hmm. was 85% black. But let's say that every official in the state, every member of the legislature, everyone who held a senior position was white. That wouldn't be conceivable, right? Right. So that's sort of what goes on in the culture of Hyundai. But but let me talk about a vet guilty super for a moment, because you asked me yes, how these please. cases came to me. I don't think that these five men, as brave as they are, I don't believe they would have come forward without that guilty Schufer being willing to file a charge of discrimination, to file a lawsuit a month ago. Yvette Gilke Shuford, I mentioned there are only in 17 years, two black people have been in executive leadership. Well, she was one of them. She was in executive leadership for four years. She was fired for reasons we believe of discrimination and retaliation earlier this year. And I'll be candid with you. They offered her a good chunk of money. And they said, if you'll just go away quietly, we'll write you a big check. And we may even say nice things about you to folks in the corporate world in the state of Alabama. She knew she had been done wrong mm. and she refused to take their money in exchange for silence. Wow. Because as you and your audience knows when a company says to you, oh, we'll settle with you. There's always a price for that settlement. You right. will never talk about it and you'll never talk about the amount of money uh, that you got. So, and you know what the company will do. Internally, they'll tell people, oh, that was a nuisance case. We sold it for nuisance mm -hmm. value. So they're out there painting a picture that they gave you pennies to make you go away, no matter what they gave you, and you can't say a thing about it. Mm -hmm. That is the price of a settlement, and that, that's how things often work. But And many people say, you know what, I need the money, and I respect that. I'm a plans lawyer, so we negotiate plenty of settlements. But I give Yvette an enormous amount of credit. I promise you, if you knew the amount of money that she was offered, I suspect 95 out of 100 people in the state of Alabama would have said, you know what, forget this discrimination business. She was courageous enough to stand up. And once she stood up, it did get covered in the media. These gentlemen said, if this lady can stand up, we can stand up too. Mm. And some of the uh, le, le, some of, there are three instances that are called it out in the AL.com article about hers, and and so we'll talk about the first two, which are pretty crazy, and then we'll save, uh, you know, the best for last, as it were, it, as far as the Union Talk Radio show is concerned. Um, one of them, she said she was paid fifteen thousand dollars less than similarly situated counterparts, which is pretty bad in and of itself. Then another one, she said that 
during a meeting, her she found that, or uh, as she was elevated to this quote director of administration in 2018, she found that her duties had been so pared back that a white executive quote joked that her quote primary role during team sessions was to ensure the coffee stayed hot. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, let me get the context for that. So the normal position of the normal duties of director of administration are you run vending, you run business relations, you run HR, you run team relations, you participate in all business planning. The HR function was taken away from her. The team relations function was taken away from her. She was denied membership in all the business planning sessions. So one of the few duties that she had left, her principal duties, frankly, were black political outreach and working with political folks like Congresswoman Sewell and the leadership in Montgomery mm-hmm. uh, and working with Quinn Ross at Alabama State. Those were honestly her primary duties for a lot of the time she spent there that four years. But one of the duties left with her was managing vendors. Well, Vendors include cafeteria services, and GLAD includes the people who provide the coffee for the executive session meetings. So one day the coffee was lukewarm, and the joke was made that uh, your primary duty is to make sure the coffee's warm. Wow. Because uh, vendors who supply the coffee fell under her leadership. Now, this is the reality. You have this position that when a white man held her predecessor was a white guy whose mm-hmm. background was in PR. No disrespect to PR, right? We're doing your PR right now in a sense. But mm-hmm. uh, he came up in the ranks and was a PR guy who then they moved into management to give him some experience. He became director of administration. He had the whole kit and caboodle. He ran human mm-hmm. relations. He ran team relations, participated in all the business planning meetings, has an undergraduate uh, BA. Well, when a vet gets the position, Yvette has an MBA. Yvette has been experienced in every major aspect of production leadership at Hyundai. When she gets the role, despite her substantial experience in her MBA, the position is downsized. Mm. All of the major duties are sliced away. So all of a sudden, her being in charge of the people who bring in coffee does become a big part of her portfolio. That tells you so much about the culture of this company, because any company that discriminates against people on the front line truly understand that that discrimination, that mindset is going to make its way up the food chain. And even the African-Americans who do manage to break through, they are vulnerable to being slapped down at some point. And listen, this is about women, too. But that Shuford is also one of only two women who've held a senior leadership role in the executive team. One of Mm -hmm. only two women in 17 years. Um, About a third of the workforce at Hyundai is female. But again, a fraction of the leadership is female. And that's not just black women, that's white women as well. Uh, Hyundai is happy to have blacks and women help build cars. They're happy to have that happen. But when you talk about putting people in leadership positions and you talk about putting people in senior roles and paying them real money, and yes, you mentioned the example of pay, that's a classic area of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yvette Shufford, now get this, 
there are roughly 14 people on the executive team of the directors, the people who are director level, and there were seven of them. Only two of them had a terminal degree. Head of legal, head of JD. She had an MBA. She was paid $15,000 less than the head of legal, even though a JD and an MBA are exactly comparable degrees. And mm-hmm. she was paid seven to $10,000 less than the other white guys who held their positions. So she was mm-hmm. underpaid for four years, not given the responsibilities her predecessor, who was less educated and less experienced, was given. I call that a culture of discrimination. Absolutely. And one of the reasons that, it, that, that I think the article alludes to that some of those HR responsibilities might have been pared away um, was, uh, was alluded to in the EEOC case that she brought against Hyundai before filing this lawsuit with you. Where during this EEOC case, and I, I called you yesterday because Adam didn't believe that we were reading the article right. But I called you yesterday and confirmed that in the EEOC case, Hyundai's defense was that they only elevated her to kill a union campaign. So yes. they they basically, you know, they got, you know, one of them kind of, right? They got somebody, from a, a black woman, elevated her to a position of authority. See, look how much we care about black folks, about women. And, uh, and, and that was, and, and they just said that. That was their defense. And so, so, so and, and one of the things that w- was that I, I think I remember the article saying that they thought that there were people at the ground level that were maybe emboldened by her, perhaps, to bring discrimination complaints. And so that's maybe one of the reasons why they pared back some of the HR stuff is because maybe she actually cared a little bit about the workers as an executive. And they were like, oh, no, we can't have that. Is Am I reading that right? You're reading it exactly right. And this was breathtaking to me as a lawyer. Normally, when companies file position statements with the EEOC, frankly, it's usually very generic. Mm-hmm. Literally, they spend the first two pages quoting from their HR manual. And mm-hmm. those are the first two pages of the response, whether it's five pages or 20, those are always the first two. So I candidly expected the company to sort of stick to the story they gave Yvette Schufer when they fired her. They told her there was a restructuring going on. And I thought that they would say, yeah, we decided to do a restructuring and we're in the middle of doing it now. And I thought they might even say, and it wasn't just this position, it was several others. Now, we didn't buy that, but we were prepared to challenge it. But I'll be candid with you. I thought and I told my client, you know, that's what they're going to say. Well, lo and behold, in writing, they said, no, this was not about discrimination, not about retaliation, and it wasn't really about a restructuring either. We put Yvette Gilkey Schufer in this position, quoting their position statement, because we felt that elevating her would counter union organizing that was going on at the plant. Now we feel that the union threat, and that's what they called it, the union threat has abated so it was no longer necessary to have her in this role. Now, here's the Thank kicker. God. None of her job had to do with countering union organizing. That was not a single line item of her job. Mm. So what does that mean? 
that someone whose job had nothing to do with union organizing was put in the job to counter union organizing. Um, as the old folk used to say, Ray Charleston, see what that means. What mm -hmm. it means is that this company felt that elevating a black person as a token might appease the black people at the plant. And if you appease them, they're not going to want to join. And we all know the phrase they use, the union, as if mm -hmm. there's one union in the United States of America. They always say <laughs> the union, right? right. right. It's, also, it's not like they say the blacks. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, a lot of these same folks use the phrase the blacks, but they also will say the union. Well, they felt that if African-Americans said, oh, wow, now one of us is in a senior role, so we don't mm -hmm. need to worry about this union stuff. And obviously they felt like it sort of worked. So they say in their position statement, it's an official government document, an official position of theirs now, <laughs> they say that they concluded that the union threat had faded, so we no longer needed her in this position. You can't even wrap your hands around what that means. From a legal standpoint, it means that they have conceded that race was a motivating factor in their decision, and we dang sure pled and argued that. But from just a moral standpoint, mm -hmm. instead of saying, we put this person in a job because we trusted them, if they had said, you know what, this person wasn't performing, mm -hmm. they might be wrong, but we'd understand that defense. If they had said, well, we just concluded she wasn't doing the job she was hired to do. I told the vet, you know, I, I at any given time have 40 to 50 cases. Hers might be the only case that I have where the company's defense is not in some way, shape or form poor performance. And mm -hmm. their position statement, they had not a negative word to say about her job performance. I can't tell you how rare that is. I've had wow. clients who've had spotless records that they say, well, they had a good record, but they were late the two days before we fired them. They've been here for five right. years. They were late those two days. And you're sitting there saying, really? With Yvette, they don't even suggest there was a problem. That is so rare in these cases for them to admit no performance issues, no disciplinary issues, no infractions. But we just thought that we didn't need a token anymore. So goodbye. Wow. It's so egregious. It, yeah. It, it's yeah, it's a pretty shocking one. So it sounds like you're feeling pretty good about this one. Well, lawsuits take a long time. And I always tell my clients that cases can easily um, take three years to get to trial. Even if cases settle, that can often be a year and a half to two year process. And I always tell my clients if we go to a jury and we win, they're going to appeal. The mm. appeal will last for another year and a half. So before you see money, it could be five years. These cases, and that's almost a whole separate program, it is shameless how long it takes cases to litigate in the American federal courts. But we feel confident that, first of all, these individuals deserve a champion. That's always my standard when I decide do I bring a lawsuit. Does my client deserve a champion? And then do they have facts that are meritorious that can stand up in federal court? I'm not telling you, Jacob, anything you don't know. The federal judges in Alabama are overwhelmingly pro-business. They're overwhelmingly mm -hmm. conservative. Um, and they have the mindset, understand what they mean federal judges. It literally requires an act of Congress to fire them. They have to mm -hmm. be impeached. 
So they often can't relate to the notion of somebody being fired. They can't relate to the notion of somebody being told you've worked here for 19 years and now you have to go, as a vet trooper was told, because that can't happen to them. Right. No matter how they perform, no matter how many times they're reversed, coming up, that will not happen yep. to them. Come, coming up on on the end of the show, we got about forty five seconds left, but uh, but yeah, definitely a long road ahead. But uh, looking forward to uh, you making them pay, Mister Davis. <laughs> well, thank you for giving me and my clients the time this morning. Absolutely, Absolutely. thank yep. you. All right. All right, folks, we're going to be keeping an eye on that for sure. That's a that is crazy, a wild case. Crazy stuff going on. Uh, find us on YouTube and Facebook, folks, um, at the Valley Labor Report, where we're going to be going into overtime. We're talking to a Norwegian journalist who's been doing some labor reporting here in the U.S. about the labor situation over in Norway and what the U.S. situation looks like to him from there. Stay tuned. See you next week. All right, folks, we're off the radio. Um, yeah, whoo, that's crazy. That's crazy stuff. Um, got a lot of a lot of comments in the chat. Apologies, Ron. I didn't have uh, time to ask him your question. What is the Alabama AG doing about the labor violations? But uh, I feel pretty confident in saying that uh, the answer is nothing. Very confident about that. Um, uh, uh, let's see who uh, Infinite Content says I went through some uh, similar BS at a former job of mine yeah absolutely uh, John D. Rocky says an actual queen yes very happy uh, yeah I, I gotta done. say I, I do give her a lot of credit mm -hmm. uh, through my experience I, I worked with many members who were in you know some similar situations and who you know were kind of having to make that decision do I take a settlement do I keep fighting and um yeah I, I really give her a lot of credit yep. and, and i think that's something you know not that i ever would want people to get promoted to management uh, <laughs> but right. like if you do don't forget where you came from yeah. and that does give you a little bit more privilege so to speak to, to fight to for, fight for something bottom, that's yeah. right and so mm -hmm. credit to her for doing that yeah absolutely um John D. Rocky says, uh, good luck with the case. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure she'll appreciate it. Um, appreciate you hanging out in the chat, John. Um, Infinite Content asks, is the Alabama plant unionized? Uh, no, no, it's not. Uh, David says, uh, man, I had to log back on YouTube just to say I can't believe how crazy this Hyundai story is. I've said it a lot, but management across the board is the most incompetent people in the world. Wow, absolutely, absolutely. This yeah. is just a crazy story. I mean, how much, I mean, seriously, folks, Hyundai is, I mean, what are they doing? I can't believe they would go so far as to admit that in the EEOC response. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that could be submitted as an unfair labor practice. Um, oh, by the union that was presumably busted. Whatever union busted. Yeah. was presumably mm -hmm. there that they were trying to bust. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I'll have to talk to the – maybe I'll, I'll talk to the UAW about that. Uh, yeah. So, I, think, I think they were probably the ones because they've been – They've been, you know, hitting press releases and stuff about this child labor stuff down there. So, so yeah, I, I, I imagine mean, it was UAW. Something, were... something for them to consider because mm -hmm. to put it in writing is so incredibly rare. <sighs> no and, kidding. Um, I, I think uh, Mr. Davis was right. It does indicate the kind of culture that they have, like company wide, for any one of these things to be happening. 
mm-hmm. indicates a cultural problem there. And the fact that all of that is occurring is just, um, it's yeah. just dis- disturbing. Yeah. As we're wrapping up the main part of the show, even though we're off of, of YouTube, we'll go ahead and do these plugs for the podcast. Uh, don't forget about our UMWA sisters and brothers in Brookwood. You can support the striking families at paypal.me slash UMWA Strike Pantry. That's right. Jobs to Move America is hosting a free online training entitled How to Be an Effective Advocate with former State Representative Patricia Todd. The training is Wednesday, November 23rd at 6 p.m. You can go to jobstomoveamerica.org for more information. Labor Notes has online training and meetings. The Labor Notes 101 Meet Your Fellow Troublemakers is on the 20th. The Stewards Workshop Using Grievances to Organize is on the 29th of November. Secrets of a Successful Organizer three-part November-December workshop series is going to be on Wednesdays beginning on the 30th, then on the 7th, then on the 14th of December. You can leave us a voicemail at 844-899-TVLR. Let us know what you thought about the show. Uh, Buy our stickers. Give us money on our website, tvlr.fm. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. The Valley Labor Report, all power to the workers. We'll be right back with Overtime. Overtime.